Um, first, we just want to thank everybody for um, being here tonight and joining um, us with the Community Housing Hub, um, Austin, Rev Austin Revital um, Revitalization Authority, um, University of Texas, and the Austin Area Urban League as we discuss um, housing equity in the times of you know, COVID-19, which is everybody's role. Um, we have a really, really great um, um, cohort of, of panel um, and experts and people that know housing very well. Um, and we think this is important because as we see, uh, one of the main effects of the coronavirus has been um, housing insecurity. It has been people worrying about, um, you know, if they're gonna be evicted, if they if they're gonna have resources for rent and things um, of that nature. So we just wanna make sure that we're keeping everybody up to date in the know um, and providing any answers that uh, we, we can possibly provide with the people we have here today. Um, a few things that I'm gonna get out the way and turn it over to the lovely uh, Ms. Cumberbatch. Um, for the people that are in the, the attendees, if you have questions, please don't hesitate to put them in the Q&A. It's at the bottom of your screen, like two notches over from um, um, the chat option. Um, and what that does is it allows our panelists to see the questions. Um, and also, I think it'll be very helpful for the panelists if you can kind of start the question off with one of the um, topics that we have, whether it's tax relief or, or any of the topics that we had. So that way um, the panelists know um, that the question is for them. And also, I think we're going to allow a few people to actually chime in with their voice. Um, so there's a raise hand button that should be at the top of the chat box. Um, where it says like more, it says invite mute. Um, at least that's what I see. And then you can raise your hand and we will see that. And at the appropriate time, we will allow um, a few people to chime in with their voice so we can hear from you lovely folks. Um, and yes, this is being recorded. Um, right now, we're just gonna have it here in the Zoom interface. And then we are all gonna share this on our Facebook um, and maybe YouTube channels for the broader public to see. Um, but again, thank you all for being here, and I hope uh, we can all learn something today. I hope everybody's staying safe. Hope everybody's staying home. Um, and on that note, I'll turn it over to Virginia. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for, um, as Chad alluded to, um, taking time. And we know it is a very um, unpredictable, unprecedented moment in our community and around the world. And so we're just grateful to be in a space with you this evening um, in hopes that we can collaborate in bringing you information and resources that will be useful to you and your family and your community um, so that we can ensure that our community is housed and housed, so, housed in a way that is equitable. Um, so we, we consider it a privilege to be in space with you tonight and hope that we can be helpful. Um, just a little bit of background information to orient you guys to the way that this virtual clinic is going to work tonight. And in advance, we thank you for your patience and flexibility. I think we're all getting used to um, our life um, in a virtual reality. Um, so there might be a few hiccups along the way, but um, we hope at the end of the day, you guys get the information that you need. Um, so I'm just gonna orient you guys a little bit to the Community Housing Hub um, and um, how it came about and the clinics that we've been running. And then I'm gonna go through the agenda for tonight, just so that you guys can know when the information that will be most relevant to you will be offered, knowing that I'm sure you guys are multitasking, you're at home, maybe you're still doing work and we wanna be mindful of your time. 
Um, also, um, if you want to sort of expand the conversation beyond our little virtual um, hang session here on Zoom, um, you can find uh, the Community Housing Hub on Twitter at UT underscore DDCE, and then uh, Austin Justice Coalition, who is serving as our host tonight at ATX Justice. And then we're gonna be using the hashtag ATX Housing Equity. Um, so we would love for you guys to, to help us um, share this information more broadly. So just a little bit more information. Um, my name is Virginia Cumberbatch. I currently serve as the Director of Equity and Community Advocacy for the Center for Community Engagement. Uh, we consider ourselves the front porch to the university where our role is to leverage the resources um, at the university to address issues of equity and access in the community. Um, but we realize we are not the sole experts. We do not have all the resources and that we hope that really what we do is come alongside the community to co-labor around areas that you see the need for us um, to support. Um, the areas that we've focused on uh, traditionally and historically have been housing and affordability, health access, education, equity, cultural placemaking, economic development. And so um, any way that we can support you in your everyday life experience, as well as some of the community efforts that you have, um, we are more than um, happy to show up in the way that you see fit. Um, we've been particularly focused on the housing conversation over a series of front porch gathering events that we've done over the past two years, really hearing from um, our community about where uh, the priorities are. And from those community-focused front porch gatherings, um, realizing the nuances and the, the multi-layered um, sort of position of where we are as a city in terms of making sure that our community is housed and housed so equitably. People get to live where they want to, they have accessible housing, housing that um, is healthy, housing that allows them to, um, to thrive in their everyday experience. Um, and so conversations through community members is what has brought us here today to form the Community Housing Hub. Um, and understanding just where we are in terms of not just gentrification, but displacement. And knowing that that um, is beyond just the economics, it's also policy, it's also culture. And how can we help shift that? Um, so beyond our goals to address sort of the inequitable processes around housing, um, we are focusing in three areas um, with the help of our community partners, uh, which you see listed here, who we're super grateful for, um, and you will hear from um, tonight as well. And so our three areas are research, so creating a centralized place for all the research and thought leadership happening through faculty and staff on campus and making it accessible to the community so you can use that in your own efforts. Uh, preservation, realizing that cultural and historical preservation is just as important as policy. Um, when we realize that gentrification is also having a huge impact on the cultural legacy of our communities and neighborhoods. And it's important that we document and preserve the stories, particularly of communities of color who have built, uh, helped build this city. And then lastly, advocacy. How can we provide on the ground support, um, tangible um, resources to the community? And that's where we find ourselves here tonight uh, with our spring housing equity clinic. And our hope is that you guys will walk away with tangible materials and information um, that will support you in your particular um, housing conversation. 
Um, and we realize that COVID-19 is having um, an extreme um, impact on exacerbating some of the issues that were already very much a part of our reality here in Austin. Um, and so our hope is that the information we're sharing is going to be relevant in bringing us through this moment. Um, so just gonna backtrack a little bit to show you guys where we are in the agenda. So again, you guys can know what to expect throughout the evening. Um, and we really wanna help keep you guys um, no longer than 7.30 this evening. So we're gonna start off with funding resources. Um, we understand that right now, while it's wonderful to talk about what we can do around housing three months from now, six months from now, a year from now, we're thinking through the immediate. And the immediate is around how do we help people get through this last month? Um, how do we pay rent um, next month? How do people pay their utilities? How do we get access to emergency funding? And so we are super grateful um, that Kendra Garrett um, with the Austin Justice Coalition is gonna share some information that hopefully will be useful to you guys. Um, and then after um, each of the conversations, uh, our presentations, we will have a 10 minute Q&A session. Um, and so I'll come back on to help facilitate that where we will um, provide space for people to ask questions either through the chat or by raising your hand virtually um, so that you guys can get the information you need um, tonight. So I'm gonna turn it over to Kendra. All right, perfect. Hi, everyone. There we go. Hi, uh, my name is Kendra Garrett, and I am a co-lead housing and community development team for Austin Justice Coalition. And today I'm going to kind of talk about three, uh, two local funding sources that are happening right now, and then additional emergency source uh, assistance that, um, that people can kind of plug into if they have additional questions or need um, assistance in other ways. Um, so I'm going to talk about the first one is the City of Austin's RISE Fund um, that is currently ongoing. Um, next, I'll talk about HACA, um, Housing Authority for the City of Austin, and then City of Austin is partnered with City of Austin's Neighborhood um, Housing and Community Development Department um, to do the rent program um, that has open uh, application period right now. And then um, finally, we'll be just tapping into a couple other additional emergency assistance programs at other organizations that people can kind of call and see um, what they're providing, how much, and what, it's, what that funding could be used for. So the first one is um, the RISE Fund. So it's in its like full name, it's the Relief in the State of Emergency Fund. And so in early April, the city of Austin passed a resolution and an ordinance to use the local funds um, to create an emergency relief assistance program for all of Austin and Texas, well, for Austin slash uh, Travis County residents. Um, this fund um, is local, is from the local general fund um, and its total amount is in $15 million. Um, and so the way this fund is being distributed is that it's um, the city of Austin is using um, already established uh, local, con local organizations that are contracted with them uh, to provide them these funds. And then each, each organization is distributing those funds um, as people call in to request funds um, and do an outreach in that sort of fashion. Um, so the goal for these, um, this funding source is to provide immediate and direct services and assistance um, for um, residents in an equitable focus and kind of temporary way for uh, vulnerable residents that are affected by COVID-19. 
Um, so your eligibility requirements um, to access RISE funds, I think this is pretty uniform um, across all organizations that, are, that have these contracts with the city and are able to provide this funding, is that you must be an Austin Travis County resident. Uh, you must have experienced a significant um, hardship or loss of household income related to COVID-19. And so examples of this are being laid off or furloughed, um, can any unpaid absences from work due to um, school or daycare having to stay at home um, while your um, kids are doing distant learning, um, any care for your family members during this time, um, and then also having to be quarantined um, due to possible COVID-19 exposure. Um, another eligibility is um, household income requirements. I'm actually thinking, I'm not quite sure what it is. I would definitely contact organizations, which we'll talk about those in a few slides down um, that are distributing these funds to make sure that you fall within their household income requirements. And go back, uh, can you go back one? Yeah, perfect. And also um, in particular, these funds are um, kind of just uh, get our particularly used for folks um, who won't receive other government relief, such as the federal stimulus check through the federal government through the CARES Act or unemployment insurance benefits. Um, yeah, so, um, so the four organizations currently um, that are announced to have um, received RISE funds are the Austin Area Urban League um, and their organization, their um, email um, and phone number Sorry, the website and the phone is right there. Um, same thing with the Asian Family Support Services, um, Al Buen, and then Catholic Charities of Central Texas. Um, I do know, um, as I was um, working with Austin area early, early today, um, the backlog is pretty extensive. And so um, it's hard in this time to be patient. Um, but I, I definitely, if, definitely contact one or all of the organizations to see how best they can serve um, your immediate needs right now. Um, and so the next program that we're going to talk about is the Austin Relief of Emergency Needs for Tenants rent program. And this program was just announced last week. Um, so the Housing Authority for the City of Austin is partnered with the city's uh, neighborhood housing community development department. Um, to allocate these funds. Um, and this is strictly for rent assistance. The RISE funds that I just previously talked about can be done, that can be used for food assistance, um, medical costs, childcare costs, um, a number of things. Um, this particular program is specifically only for rent assistance for Austin tenants. Um, and the funding for this program is in total right now, $1.2 million and it's to um, provide rent assistance for May rent. Um, and so the application period actually opened up yesterday um, at May 4th at 9 a.m. and then it closes tomorrow, May 6th at 11.59 p.m. Um, and so how they're doing this process is kind of how they've done, how they run their um, housing voucher process. Um, it's a lottery program and so qualified residents will be randomly selected. Um, and so if they're chosen, um, a check will be issued directly to their landlord on May 15th. Um, and we'll kind of talk about how this program works. Um, additionally, it's, it's a one-time payment given. Um, so it's only used for you, your need for May rent today. Okay. And so for rent program, the application eligibility requirements, um, you must be submitted online 
Um, it can be through a tablet or through your smartphone. Um, I think if you do call and you don't have any access to any digital access, definitely give them a call and we'll kind of, we'll have their contact information in a future slide. Um, things that are required for the application are basic information, your name, social security number or ID, email, and then following through the application process. Um, for folks who don't have a social security number, I believe that you can leave that part blank um, and they will, um, during their verification process, they'll link back up to make sure um, to verify that you are who you are, you say you are, and future documents that you will need. Uh, for Go back, <laughs> sorry, yeah, go pick up, there you go. Uh, for house, um, another requirement is household income. So your household income has to be at or below 80% MFI, which is median family income. And so right here below, this is the 2020 HUD income limits for Travis County. Um, so for families, for example, for a family of four, um, your income will need to be 78,100 or less. Perfect. Um, other requirements that you must provide documentation of financial impact by COVID-19 and the need for rent relief. Um, so um, a layoff form from your employer, um, other similar documents like that. Um, and then also notice from your landlord that you need to pay rent and, or you owe rent um, to any of those documentations that will be required um, via their application process. Um, the, another requirement is that you must have a current executed lease. So you can't be like moving into another apartment, like you have to be your current lease today based on your, your May rent that's due probably two days ago. Um, and then lastly, um, you may not be a recipient of other rent assistance programs such as uh, Section 8 or Housing Choice Vouchers, BASH, which is Veterans, essentially housing vouchers, uh, tenant-based uh, rent assistance and other similar, other similar programs that are either funded by the federal government, the state or local um, government entities. Okay. Um, so again, this rent program is a one-time only um, subsidy and it's for your main rent and so how um, this, the allocation is calculated is so it's your May, it's your rent payment will be lesser of the rent payment limited by your bedroom size or your actual monthly rent minus 30% of your household income. So we're even going to go through an example in the next slide about how that works. Especially there's there, um, for this program, there is rent payment limits per bedroom size. So for an efficiency, they'll pay up to 900 one bedroom up to a thousand, two bedroom, and so on and so forth on this on this um, picture on this slide. Um, this is also available on the website, which I'll give you that um, that link shortly. And so we kind of go through an example. So a family of four lives in a three bedroom apartment. The head of household was laid off because her employer downsized due to COVID nineteen. Um, their gross annual, like their yearly income, is twenty five thousand dollars. And the family currently has a executed lease for a monthly rent of $1,600 in Austin. So in this table, you have your gross annual income at $25,000 um, and then you divide that up by 12 months. And so um, each month it's roughly $2,083. Um, 30% of that is $625. There you go, $625. Um, so first, the current, so their current monthly rent is $1,600. However, this program will only pay up to $1,400. So 
those, it takes the lesser of the two, either how much your actual rent is or how much we'll pay per unit uh, bedroom size. And so um, they'll pay up to $1,400. And then you would deduct 30% of your gross income from that total. Um, and so the total rent assistance that this subsidy will pay is 775. That means you still have to pay the additional $625 for your month's rent. Oh, I feel like I'm getting questions about that, hopefully. Um, and so if you have any questions, um, see the FAQ page at hakanet.org slash rent dash FAQ. Um, if you have any questions about this program, you can definitely email to atxrenthelp at hakanet.org. Um, they are open, their hours for um, questions or text, either English or in Spanish, are from 7.30 to 7.30 p.m., 8 a.m. to p.m., um, starting last Friday until May 22nd. And there are multilingual services available. So if you don't speak English or Spanish, you speak Arabic, um, they also are able to help you as well. Um, and then lastly, uh, we have, there's an, a number of organizations uh, around the city um, that are also providing additional emergency um, assistance. So one is Austin Public Health Neighborhood Services, Goodwill of Central Texas, Travis County Family Support Services, and then there's a definitely a, a, a substantial list of um, organizations on the City of Austin's website that can point you in direction to find not only mortgage and rent relief, but also um, anything as, as far as food, medical expenses, et cetera, that you might need in your time during this time right now. So thank you very much. I'll take questions. Thank you so much, Kendra. Just as a reminder, you can submit your uh, question via the chat or the Q&A, which will allow it to stay anonymous. Um, we already have some questions, so I'm just going to read them out loud to you, Kendra. Um, so uh, the first question is, um, will the rent fund cover late fees? May rent is typically due by the 5th at the latest and accrues daily late fees. Should people applying include base rent and late fees on their applications? So for the rent program, I believe it does not cover late fees. It only covers whatever your, whatever your um, rent payment is. And so for this program, um, if you are chosen through the lottery program um, and you're qualified, they will figure out what your rent payment is and they'll submit that portion to your landlord. And so you, I believe, would be have to pay for the, the other portion that's not, the 30% that's not included in the subsidy and any late fees that are incurred. Virginia, I don't, this is Heather Way. Shoshana is on the call too, can speak to, um, there's you know, important federal protections. There's certain landlords that are not allowed to charge late fees at the moment. So I don't know if we want to raise that briefly for, for folks on the call to know about. There's a certain class of properties where landlords right now are prohibited from charging late fees. And Shoshana, if you want to jump in on that briefly. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I can quickly mention it. And um, uh, Jonathan from BLS will go into it a little bit more in more detail, but probably over half of Austin renters are covered by these late fee protections. Um, I'm also not 100% sure if HACA, if this rent program will totally not cover late fees, but because of the caps, HACA um, was an NHCD, a neighborhood housing and community development, were saying they didn't believe that they would be covering late fees and that if landlords accept the payment, they have to say that um, every, they're good with rent. Um, so they shouldn't be charging additional, the tenant additional 
um, additional amount if they accept the amount. Great. And so we're going to offer these questions up sort of generally to everyone that we have accumulated for this conversation. Um, the next question is, are these funds only for people that live inside the city limits? Um, I know there was different funding options um, and resources listed. Um, so I don't know if the four that you mentioned, Kendra, if you want to kind of go down the list and answer that. And then Shoshana, if you have additional insight. Um, yeah, I do believe that you have to be a Austin Travis County resident. Yeah, so city of Austin, but it also can be Travis County. So if you're outside the city, but you're in Travis or you're in the city um, and in Williamson. And then the next question is applicants only have to meet one of those qualifications. So you listed several qualifications, uh, Kendra, in the presentation. Um, do they have to meet all of them or is one sufficient? Um, I'm actually, I'm not, can I go to Shoshana? Sorry, can you repeat the question? Um, there were several qualifications listed. I think this is when you were talking about the RISE funds, Kendra. Mm -hmm. um, do they have to meet all of the qualifications or just one? I think that is a open question. Yeah. And I think it depends upon the program because there are because there are various people administering the programs, everyone's administer administering it slightly differently. I don't know, Heather, if you have additional insight. I just noticed there are several people from the city of Austin that have joined um, the calls for attendees. So I, to the extent they're able to you know, post responses to that too, they might know the answer about, yeah, I don't know the answer to that question. Yes, we know there's information coming from a lot of different uh, platforms, but please also, if you're able to, um, take a look at the chat throughout this evening because we'll have folks jumping in to add to the conversation. Um, next question is, will these funds be considered income for tax purposes? Um, I would have to follow back up with that one. I actually also don't know the answer to that question. And we will have our, um, our section in about 15 minutes will be focused particularly on taxes. So I'm gonna reiterate that question when we get there. Um, one last question. Um, what if you've already lost your housing? Can people still apply for the funds um, to then support them in finding new housing? I would say at least for the RISE program, um, depending on who's administering it, I would think that might be funding that could be used for that. For the rent program, it doesn't sound like it's that flexible that it, since it's got to be um, for a current lease, um, that in the payment would go strictly to the landlord, um, it would, you would not be able to use those funds. But for RISE funds, depending on the organization, um, it seems like those, those um, funds would be able to um, provided for that, for this situation. Great. Um, and then in terms of the allocation of funds, is it a one-time payment of full rent? For the rent program, it is. It is a one-time payment for May rent. Um, for the RISE program, it is also a one-time payment. Um, that might be a little loose, but mostly, I think it's mostly one-time payment. Great. Um, and then um, we had a question asking about if the slides will be available 
online afterwards. And yes, we will post them to our uh, community housing hub website. And then if you submit the information form that was shared in the chat earlier, uh, we'll then have your contact information and we'll make sure that you guys get the recap email that will include uh, the PowerPoint slides, the video recording of this conversation um, and additional materials. Um, and then um, if there's anyone that can speak to the Austin Energy Plus One program, um, there was a suggestion that that could also be a resource, um, that it helps cover utility payments for people experiencing hardship. However, you have to apply through a partner organization listed on their website. So I'll post that link. Thank you so much to Shane Johnson. Um, if you'll actually post that link in the chat so everyone has access to that, that would be wonderful. Um, and then there was a question that I think is a little bit more general um, and, and is a wonderful question um, and I'll speak a little bit to it. Um, how are we holding the city accountable for the equitable distribution of funds? Are nonprofits being required to collect, raise data and not allowed to spend that money on overhead and administrative expenses? Can you speak to that last part, Kendra? And then I can follow up on sort of accountability measures in terms of we know that El, El Buen Samaritano and Catholic Charities and Austin Area League are the facilitating entities for these funds. Can you speak to how they're allowed to use them and distribute them? Um, I can speak to, I'll, I'll answer this last question first. The nonprofits are um, collecting race data um, and um, I believe a portion of their funds could be used for administrative expenses. Um, a lot of these organizations have paid staff. And so in order to administrate this program, um, I believe administrative expense is included in the, in the funds as well. Um, and to the first um, question, um, I think the distribution, the distribution of um, different types of nonprofit organizations and we're in, in, the, in the kind of clients that they serve and have an outreach to kind of creates the equitable distribution of funds. And so there's not holes in one person, one place. And so that multiple um, people that are kind of plugged into different organizations um, that they're kind of comfortable and used to um, are able to connect with them and, and figure out how to receive these funds. So I think that's kind of the way that they're trying to do equitable distribution of these funds. Um, along that, um, that piece in terms of holding not just the city but other funding entities accountable, um, there is a coalition of organizations that have gathered over the past two months um, and formerly being called the Community Resiliency Trust and that is exactly what they're working on. Um, they started a few weeks ago about creating um, sort of an equity tool to hold um, funding entities accountable for how they've distributed funds um, and the level of impact that those organizations are having. Um, knowing that um, some of our most vulnerable community members um, are not necessarily being served by some organizations. And so um, there is an effort to um, create an accountability measure. Um, it's not in place yet, but um, I will have one of our students submit the link to the Community Resiliency Trust website, which um, is covidaustin.org. Um, um, and that would be the place that you'll be able to keep up with their efforts um, around uh, accountability. So just for time's sake, we're gonna move on. Um, I am uh, 
super grateful to introduce um, Heather Way, um, who's a clinical professor and also one of the um, advisors for the UT Law School's Entrepreneurship and Community Development Clinic. Um, she's also a part of our Community Housing Hub Advisory um, Committee and is just doing incredible work around supporting our community and housing equity. Um, and so um, she'll be particularly speaking to how we protect um, your, your home, um, homestead protection, um, knowing that uh, we're not just going to be sort of exploring resources for rent, but also um, as people try to maintain home ownership. And so I'm going to turn it over to Heather. Thanks, Virginia. And thanks so much for having me. Let me know if you have any trouble hearing me. As Virginia mentioned, I am a clinical professor with the Entrepreneurship and Community Development Clinic. We provide free legal resources and assistance to local nonprofits and community businesses and community groups and small businesses who can't afford access to legal counsel. And as Virginia mentioned, I'm gonna talk briefly with you about several key things that homeowners can be doing to protect the ownership and assets in their homes. And not all of these things are unique to, to COVID-19, but some of these things are. And the presentation after me is gonna be focusing on renters. And so you, you see here the four topics I'm gonna to be touching upon. I'm first going to talk specifically about what kinds of foreclosure protections are available to most homeowners um, through the, who are impacted by the pandemic. And then I'm gonna talk about briefly about estate planning and, and tools and things that homeowners can do to make sure that their home is securely passed on to their loved ones when they die. I'm gonna talk about new property tax protections that are available specifically now for what are called heirs property owners. Those are folks who've inherited their homes. I'll be talking about that in more detail. And then I'm gonna close with a high level overview of uh, things you should do to look out for predatory practices that take advantage of vulnerable homeowners. So the next slide is um, the focus on COVID-19 foreclosure protections. And most homeowners, about 70% of homeowners in this country are covered by a new set of federal foreclosure protections that Congress adopted back in March in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. These protections apply to homeowners who are in what's called a federally covered mortgage. That includes, you may have heard of some of these terms, FHA, Veterans Administration for Vets, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae back loans. But most homeowners don't know if they're actually in one of these mortgages. And so I've included a link here that you can use um, with information on how you can look up your loan to find out if it's covered by these federal protections. And you can also talk to your mortgage servicer. That's the person, the company who you send your payments to. And if you're in one of these covered mortgages, and again, that's about 70% of homeowners, you have a right to suspend payments on your mortgages for up to 180 days if you are experiencing a financial hardship as a result of the pandemic. So again, if you're having hardship, you can't make your payment as a result of the pandemic, you've been laid off, you can't work because of childcare responsibilities, you've been ill, uh, whatever the reason is that's related to the pandemic, um, you can suspend your payments, it's called a forbearance. And if you're still experiencing a hardship at the end of those 180 days, you can actually then suspend payments for another 180 days. So it's really almost a year. But a couple of really key things to point out is in, in order to suspend your payments, you have to contact your mortgage servicer. That's the company you send your payment to. And you have to enter into what's called a written forbearance agreement. 
Uh, you shouldn't just stop making payments or your lender can foreclose against you after the middle of this month when the foreclosure moratorium ends for these federally backed mortgages. Another key thing to point out here is that you're still going to owe those suspended payments. They don't just go away. They're not forgiven. How you have to repay those suspended payments depends on the type of mortgage you have. It may be that you can tack those on at the end of the loan. Let's say your loan, your mortgage ends in 12 years from now. You just tack on those payments at the end of that term. It could be that they're added to your monthly payments. It's going to depend on the mortgage product. And there's no, the, the lender can't charge extra pen, um, no, the lender can't charge any penalties or fines or extra interest on top of just your regular interest rate as a result of you suspending payments. Uh, another thing to keep in mind is if you are paying your property taxes and insurance into escrow, you need to continue to do that. Even if your mortgage is not a federally covered mortgage, your mortgage servicer might be willing to work with you and so it's important that you reach out to your servicer. This next slide just points out a few things. One is just watch out for scams. There are always these bottom feeders that prey on, on vulnerable persons and they'll, if you see a deal that sounds too good to be true, it likely is. I've included two important links here. One is um, federal, more information about the protections I talked about, but then also I've included a link to the city of Austin website that includes contact information for several city authorized homeownership counselors who provide free counseling to help homeowners avoid foreclosure and, and identify mortgage scams. And at the end of this presentation, I also have a slide that um, with contact information for several local organizations that provide free and reduced costs for legal services if you need that as well. The next slide and the next topic I wanna to talk about real briefly is, is estate planning. And estate planning is known as the process of making legal arrangements to protect your family and plan for your personal and health care and manage or transfer the assets, your assets in the event of your incapacity or death. And what I want to focus in particular on here, though, is protecting your home and it through estate planning. And so if you can go to the next slide, uh, what I want to highlight, though, is what happens if you don't engage in estate planning and don't have the right documents in place that when you do pass, your home passes via what's called intestacy. That means that the tech, what's called the Texas Estates Code, the Texas law, it dictates who inherits your property. And there's several disadvantages of your property passing that way. One is it can lead to undesired results. It may be that the, your relatives who inherit your home are not who you wanted to inherit your home. And there's also no paper trail um, in, in terms of who owns it. Um, it's just automatically by, via law, um, the folks, um, your relatives, certain relatives inherit your home, it's typically your children, but there's no paper trail and that can lead to problems down the road improving ownership. And then over time, if you want to um, flash to the next slide, um, this really hits on this point, the ownership interest in your home can be divided after generations of, of, of homes passing in this manner, um, can come to the point where you can have dozens or even hundreds of relatives who all have an interest in that home which then leads to all sorts of problems and, and, and land loss um, because there's, um, you are not able to ever really sell the home or to get a loan on the home. It's very difficult to qualify for city and other government home repair programs and assistant programs. And this is actually a slide of one of our clients that we worked with in um, an abbreviated version of their family tree just to, to highlight what can happen if you don't engage in estate planning. If you want to flash to the next slide, then 
One thing I, I think is really important to point out is there's a huge racial divide when it comes to intestacy and estate planning and the problems associated with that. And uh, in is especially prevalent among African-American and Latinx families. This slide here shows the gap, the racial divide between white and African-American families. And that gap exists actually regardless of educational level. Um, but African-Americans inherit property via intestacy at a much higher level than whites. And as a result, experience a lot more of those negative impacts. So what I'm gonna talk about now is just the next slide the next two slides are just two really important tools um, to consider um, to consider creating if you don't already have this in place to to avoid your home passing via intestacy. So the first tool is called a transfer on death deed. I think this is one of the best tools that's out there in terms of creating a secure way to pass your home on to relatives um, that you want to designate to receive pass to receive your home upon your death. And the, one of the benefits of a transfer on death deed, it's a very inexpensive tool to create. And after you die, the home is automatically inherited to the persons that you designate in that deed. You don't have to go to the probate court um, and pay those expenses to, um, to go through that process to, um, for, uh, I'll talk about a will in a minute, for example, um, to, to probate a, a will. So it's just an automatic passing of title upon your death. And it can be easily revoked or redrafted if you change your mind in terms of who you want to inherit your home. The next tool I want to talk about is a will, though. A will is also a very important um, legal tool. It's an alternative or can actually be used in addition to a transfer on death deed to designate who gets your home. If you have a transfer on death deed, it actually trumps what's in the will in terms of who inherits your home. Um, but a will can also address who inherits all your other assets in addition to your home. The key thing to point about a will and the one drawback of a will compared to a transfer on death deed is that you have to file that with the probate court after, um, after the, the, the homeowner dies. And, and, and oftentimes there's cost associated with that depending on the type of other assets and debts that are associated with um, with that home. So passing, so then, so the next topic I just want to touch upon briefly is new property tax protections that are available for heirs property owners. And again, that's the group of homeowners who have inherited their home. And until this year, if you inherited your home, if you're a homeowner and you co-own your home with several other relatives, then you are only entitled to a partial homestead exemption. And our next um, speakers um, are going to be talking about the homestead exemption. It's a very important protection for homeowners. It results in very large tax savings, especially for seniors and persons with disabilities. But if you inherited your home along with multiple relatives or e even more than any other relatives, you only got partial access to that homestead exemption. And now under this new Texas law as of January 1st this year, you can get access if you're an heirs property owner and you, your home is your primary residence, you can get access to 100% of the homestead exemption, but you have to submit an updated homestead exemption application form. The next slide here is just a snapshot of that form. There's some questions. I know you can't read it here with the font size, but there's some questions at the bottom of that form that you would check confirming that this is heir's property and that you're entitled to receive um, those benefits as an heir, heir's property owner. But this is a 
it's really important. And even if you're personally not in the situation, um, if you want to sort of flash to the next slide, as I've mentioned, this is an issue that has um, huge impacts, especially in African-American and Latinx communities. This is a study we did in Dallas County showing the distribution of homeowners who only have that partial homestead exemption. And it shows how those homeowners are heavily concentrated in African-American and Latinx neighborhoods. And uh, we haven't done this data for Travis County yet, but I bet it would show very similar results. So we just hope you can share this information about this important new protections to others in the communities that you work with because it can really help people hold on to their homes, having access to that 100% of the homestead exemption. The last thing I just wanna hit upon then are just a series of predatory practices that are out there. Unfortunately, there are just a lot of people out there that do prey and take advantage of homeowners and vulnerable communities. Um, many of you who are homeowners may have received um, these really persistent um, letters from aggressive buyers trying to use pushy tactics to convince you to sell your home. Just remember, you don't have an obligation to respond to these letters. And if you, if you can contact legal aid if, the, if it continues and rises to the level of harassment. There are also a number of predatory practices out there in terms of predatory lenders. Um, property, if you're behind in your property taxes, you, can, you may get letters from property tax lenders with very high interest rate products. Our next speaker, speakers are gonna actually be talking about um, your availability of payment plans with the Travis County Tax Assessor that are much more affordable than a property tax loan. There are also products called reverse mortgages. Um, and some of these can actually be quite predatory where seniors are offered free homes, investment opportunities, um, foreclosure assistance in exchange for giving up the equity in their home. And if you're thinking of entering into one of these products, we just recommend you work with a HUD certified housing counselor. And again, that, that here's the, the website where you can find a list of certified nonprofits here in Austin. And then the last slide that I mentioned is just a, a list of local resources for free and low cost legal services if you need help navigating any of the things that I talked about today. Thank you so much, Heather. Oh, uh, thank you for bearing with me. <laughs> I know that's a lot of information. And so if you are still with us, um, I hope you don't feel overwhelmed. Uh, <laughs> But also one of the ways that we can follow up, because you may not have a question in this moment or you need to sort of explore your own um, sort of personal um, situation and then figure out what the question is, um, please take advantage of the resources that Heather has listed here. Um, but also a reminder, we're gonna repost it. We do have a link for you to fill out your contact information if you do want additional um, information from anyone um, that you'll hear from tonight. Um, it'll also be a way for you to get um, follow-up answers to any questions that we weren't able to answer tonight. So I know Kendra and Nefertiti have been speaking in the chat, um, particularly around whether or not uh, rent support will then be counted as, um, as a tax, um, income tax. So we'll follow up with some of those answers in a email uh, newsletter um, shortly after our um, our conversation this evening. I do want to open up the floor though if there are questions um, for Heather directly. Um, just a reminder you can do so in the Q&A or you can do so in the chat or raise your hand. Um, I have one question for you right now Heather. Um, is a transfer of death deed on record with the county clerk? 
Yeah, so that's something that to be effective has to be recorded with the Travis County Clerk's Office. Great. Don't see any other questions in the Q&A, um, except we've got some high praise from Ann Howard that you are a great teacher. Um, any other questions? And if not, we will move on to learning um, about taxes, everyone's favorite topic. Awesome. Okay, so if you- is that my cue? Yes, um, if there are any other questions for Heather, please feel free to shoot her um, a question in the chat. Um, otherwise, please um, follow up with us. I'm going to turn it over to Greg Smith with ARA. Okay, uh, thanks a lot, uh, Virginia. I hope everyone can hear me. My name is uh, Greg Smith. I'm actually the president and CEO of the Oscar Revitalization Authority, and uh, I'm real and thanks to Virginia as well as uh, the Austin Justice Coalition for uh, putting this on to allow us to video, video this out. Uh, my, my section is to talk about the uh, tax exemptions and I'm not an expert on that so I brought the experts here to, to speak with you about that. So Will and Salafon take about five minutes to uh, talk about what they're doing at Travis County and then we'll have uh, Baxter Trouble from uh, Fair Play Property Taxes to talk about uh, tax exemptions as well as uh, processing for uh, protesting your property values. Uh, with that, I would uh, turn it over to uh, Bruce uh, for him to uh, start his, uh, his piece. Well, thank you all. It's good to be with you. Um, I don't have the, uh, the best topic to um, present tonight. Uh, we're in very challenging time. Um, certainly before this year, affordability was a big issue here in Travis County and property owners have always been struggling to pay their property taxes um, since it's such a high percentage of their, of their um, tax burden. Um, with the uh, health emergency, it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, we're expecting 15, 20% unemployment in Travis County. And we were at what, three and a half percent unemployment um, two months ago. So this is gonna be a very challenging time. And you can imagine I've received a lot of um, calls and emails asking if I can um, kind of waive their taxes and waive the penalties and suspend the deadlines. And unfortunately, I don't have the authority to do any of those things. Um, so it's, it's kind, of a, a, kind of a bleak um, situation uh, for a number of uh, folks who find themselves unemployed or uh, small business owners who find their uh, businesses uh, suspended and, and possibly um, um, terminated. And let, let's certainly hope not. Um, so I wanted to spend a few minutes discussing some of the payment options that um, property taxpayers have. And then I wanna end with a little bit of work that I'm doing to try to um, bring some relief to uh, property owners um, in Travis County and, and throughout Texas. Um, well, let's start with the dates um, for property tax um, deadlines. We send out the tax bills in early October. Um, December 31st is the last day to claim your, um, your federal tax deduction. Um, if you're doing that. And um, January 31st is the last day to pay your taxes without incurring penalty and interest. And penalty and interest is a really sizable thing. At 12.01 a.m. on February 1st, uh, we have to apply 7% penalty and interest. And it goes up two percentage points every month until it hits 24%. Um, it's a very high percentage rate. It was something that the legislature established 
um, years ago when interest rates were higher and it was meant to be kind of a, a hammer um, to, to encourage people to pay their taxes. Uh, but now with interest rates so low, it's more like a sledgehammer. And, and I'm hoping that the legislature will bring down the, the penalty and interest um, at some point during the next session. Um, payment options. Um, of seniors 65 and older disabled uh, uh, citizens and uh, veterans uh, have the opportunity to pay their property taxes in four equal installments with no penalty and interest. Um, they set that up with the tax office and so they don't have to pay their property taxes at one time. They can pay it over uh, the, the whole year. Um, seniors can also have the opportunity to defer their taxes and instead of paying that, that very high penalty and interest that goes up to 24%, they can choose to defer their taxes at a 5% rate. Um, which for a lot of people will make sense. Other people, it may not. And so you have to consider it carefully when you go into um, uh, looking at a deferral. If you defer your taxes and you live for another 20 or 30 years and there's a $200,000 tax bill, when you pass away, will your, will your heirs be able to um, pay off the taxes? Uh, because at that point, the uh, state law says that uh, the heirs have 180 days to, to pay the taxes. So you have to consider where, whether a deferral is gonna make sense for you and you also have to look at your to, uh, to look to your mortgage company to see if they will allow you to defer if you still have a a mortgage on your on your house. Um, delinquent payment plans. We certainly encourage folks who can't pay the the full amount um, before the deadline to contact us and work out a payment plan. We're going to try to encourage you to be as aggressive as you can um, because the more you pay up front, the less you're going to be um, stuck with the penalty and interest. It's kind of like uh, with your credit card bill or anything else, um, the, the more you pay, the less you're going to get uh, hit with the um, with the penalty and interest. Um, the benefit of a payment plan is is we won't foreclose on your property if we work out a, a payment plan with you. The downside is that you are going to pay that penalty and interest, um, and the longer your payment plan is, it's, it's certainly going to add up. Um, I've um, I'm sending a letter tomorrow to the governor encouraging him to use his emergency powers. Um, to waive penalty and interest. Um, so we would be able to provide some uh, penalty and interest free loans um, to those specifically affected by this um, 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 uh, Corona um, emergency. Um, and then we can make the loans longer. Um, and so they can pay them over a longer period of time uh, without incurring the penalty and interest. I could add a year to your payment plan now, uh, but I'm not doing you any favors by the amount uh, extra that you would have to pay. So I'm hoping that the governor is going to be responsive to provide a little bit of tax relief um, for the um, uh, folks that have been hit so hard by this um, um, uh, virus. Um, the last thing I want to say is that we're trying to go green at the tax office. Um, we spend a quarter of a million dollars a year um, sending out uh, property tax bills. Um, you can sign up for e-bill and get it electronically. Um, you can pay online by e-check for a dollar. Um, and you don't have to send in paper checks and we don't have to process it. Um, and we certainly will send you a receipt if you pay online. Um, and we don't send out receipts except on requests now. So if you pay online, you'll get that immediate receipt. And one other thing I would say about that is a lot of people wait till the last minute to pay their property taxes um, and that's understandable. Um, but if you wait at the last minute, you may not get a same day postmark on the deadline and we have a number of people who are very angry uh, when they see the penalty and interest um, added to their tax bill um, because they mailed it on the 31st of January, but they didn't get a postmark until February 1st. Uh, we have to go by the postmarks. And so if you're gonna mail it, mail it a few days before the deadline, 
um, or go online because you'll get an immediate timestamp and, and a receipt um, that, that shows that you, um, you paid it on time. And that's all I have. I think that's my five minutes and I'm certainly happy to answer any questions when the, when the time comes. So thank you all so much. Should I go ahead? Okay, thank you, Bruce. Um, thank you all for having me. Uh, Greg introduced me on Baxter Traybold. Uh, I sort of focus on property tax appeals and exemptions. And for any of you that have questions at some point in the future, maybe watching this on YouTube, or even if you have questions that you're not able to fit in during the presentation, feel free to reach out to me. Uh, I'll certainly be providing my information so you can ask any questions at any point down the road. But for now, uh, we'll focus on property tax protests. You might have, in the last couple of weeks, gotten a notice of value from the Travis County Appraisal District. They are required to send you a notice of value if your value has increased $1,000 or more or if it's a new property, if there's a change in ownership, or if your exemption has been canceled or denied or reduced. They basically send you this notice to say that your tax situation has changed and you can receive the notice, look at it and say, okay, I see what happened here, I agree with you. Or you can look at it and say, I disagree, I protest, I want to file an appeal here. And at this point, within 30 days of receiving that notice, you can file a protest uh, with the appraisal district. Uh, you can do that either by written letter or by using, there's uh, the comptroller form 50132. That is the formal appeal form that is issued by the Texas comptroller. You can either mail that into the Travis County Appraisal District, or right now they have a drop box. Obviously with the situation we're in, you can not go into the Appraisal District, but you can bring your protest by, leave it in the drop box and say, I disagree with my value, I disagree with the exemption that you removed or whatever you might be protesting. Uh, when you do protest, for this year, of course, uh, TCAD is, uh, they, they're insistent that you file your protest online. You obviously have the option to file a physical protest by mail, or like I said, by dropping it off at their offices. But they are hoping that the majority of taxpayers, not only this year, but in future years, will protest their property online and take the entire protest process online as it's much more efficient for them and it's much easier for the taxpayers to uh, just sort of deal with this process and get the value uh, changed hopefully at the informal level where you're not required to take it before what's called the appraisal review board. You can just get the protest done by getting uh, on, on the online service, this is called a, a offer through their e-portal. One second. So if you are gonna protest your property's value for this year, you will file that protest and then 
you'll submit whatever evidence you might have for a value reduction through either the online portal or you can go onto TCAD's website and get in what they're calling their queue. It's uh, basically getting you in line for an appraiser to reach out to you and ask for whatever evidence you might have and exchange whatever evidence they might have to say, um, okay, I'm overassessed. I think my property value is too high. Maybe your property characteristics, according to the appraisal district, are incorrect. Uh, a quick way to check for that is to go on the appraisal district's website. You can type in your address or your last name or whatever the owner name might be for the property and then look at the property characteristics on TCAD's website so that you can see the square footage of your property. You can see how many baths or bedrooms they might have for your property. And if there are any discrepancies between what's on the TCAD website and what you know to be the characteristics of your property, that's certainly something that you would want to bring up in a protest and that could be cause for a property tax reduction. Another thing is if you have any damage to your property, if you have any bids uh, for engineer reports, or if you've had any insurance claims for your property, you'll wanna file those uh, or upload those rather to uh, the TCAD evidence or file those with the appraiser to show that here is uh, a bid that I have for my property, here's damage or characteristics to my property that necessarily aren't represented in the appraisal, but that could be reason for a reduction to your property. Um, another way is if you're on a floodplain, uh, if you have uh, additions to your property that are being done that are incomplete, you can present construction documents. So basically anything you have that can substantiate that whatever TCAT is showing your property to be as of January 1st might not be representative of what it was because they, they don't necessarily have the resources to look at every property individually and look at every single, uh, uh, basically assess every single property uh, as accurately as the property owner might hope that they do. So let's see, uh, if you are for whatever reason unable to reach a resolution after you protest your value with the appraiser, um, then you will go to a property tax hearing this is done at the appraisal review board and generally appraisal review boards in prior years have been held at the Travis County Appraisal District or an offsite location. This year, of course, uh, it's likely that we will be doing hearings over the phone or over Zoom or some other video platform where you can present your evidence the district presents their evidence, and then the appraisal review board makes a deliberation based on the evidence presented, and they come up with a, a value determination to say, we agree with the appraisal district's evidence, we agree with your evidence, or we're gonna sort of come up with our own deliberation, split it down the middle, 
and uh, come up with a value on their own. Um, I, I would recommend just for the ease, uh, for, for your ease, uh, that you submit as much evidence as you can at the informal level, whether that is through the portal online after protesting or whether that is on the telephone with an appraiser, if you uh, would like to do it that way. Uh, so that you can avoid going to the ARB. Uh, I, I find that obviously the appraisal district especially is going to be uh, looking out for the taxpayers this year and that if you do have evidence for a reduction, they're certainly going to take that into consideration. And once you get to the appraisal review board level, uh, the, there's much more uncertainty at that level. So if you are able to work something out with an appraiser before the hearing, I would recommend that you give them as much evidence as they can beforehand so that they can do that. Uh, uh, with regard to exemptions, obviously the homestead exemption is probably the most important. I know that Heather spoke briefly on that, but if you are in Travis County and your primary place of residence, uh, sorry, one second, please. So in Travis County, you're of course entitled to the homestead exemption for your primary place of residence. The average savings on a tax bill for a homestead exemption in Travis County is $750. If you're over 65 and you have the over 65 exemption, that, saving, uh, that savings is up to $2,000 off of your tax bill. So it's really important that you apply for the homestead exemption if you are eligible. Eligibility comes down to you having uh, the property as your primary place of residence. And also on the application, you have to submit a copy of your either Texas driver, driver's license or your Texas identification card that shows the address on the identification card or driver's license is the same as the primary residence for which you're applying uh, for the homestead exemption. Uh, if those qualifications are met, and if you don't have a homestead exemption on any other property uh, in the state or in any other state, then you will qualify for the homestead exemption as long as you occupied that place of residence before January 1st of the property tax year. And again, that's a, a huge savings for homeowners. It's really important that you apply for that. Um, Heather sort of touched on how we have this uh, incredible new piece of legislation which allows for heirs to get a 100% exemption on their homestead, which in prior years wasn't possible. Uh, I've done a lot of work in West Dallas where uh, it was an airship home and they were unable to get that full exemption because they only had partial ownership, uh, the home wasn't probated, and uh, it was just a situation where they could maybe only get 15 or 20% of the homestead exemption on their property. But now with this new piece of legislation, we can get a 100% exemption if you meet those qualifications that she spoke about. So uh, just basically 
the homestead exemption, of course, is, is going to be your primary every single year. Uh, you, you want that. And then, of course, protesting your property value year after year uh, it is also another great resource for taxpayers in the county. Thank you so much, uh, Bruce and Baxter. We're going to open it up for Q&A. We already have three in the queue that I'm just going to go ahead and read out to you. Um, so either of you guys can address it. The first is a question that we kind of punted from uh, Kendra's um, presentation, which is the funds that people might receive, um, the emergency funds from maybe from the RISE um, fund, will those be considered income uh, for tax purposes? Do y'all know the answer to that? Uh, I know that we deal specifically with property taxes. So as income taxes are concerned, I've seen that a lot of both federal, local, and state uh, funds that are being sent out are not being considered as income. Uh, I'm sure that it's, of course, different for every single piece of funding that is put out there, but uh, I'm yet to see one that was considered taxable income, but of course, uh, you would want a, a more definitive answer. I'm not sure that, Bruce, whether you know or not. I, I don't. I deal with property taxes as well, not income taxes, except that I have to pay them. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we, we've documented all these questions, so anything that we can't answer tonight, we'll be sure to follow up with um, in our news, uh, newsletter. Um, the second was um, a request to elaborate on the opportunity for seniors to volunteer to reduce their tax burden. How does that work? Who is eligible for it? And how is it advertised? And can others volunteer on behalf of seniors if they aren't able to volunteer? I haven't been asked that question in a very long time. It's a very obscure section in the tax code um, that does allow seniors to, to basically work off their property taxes. And since I've been tax assessor, nobody has come forward um, asking to do that. I know a little bit about it, but not a whole lot. But I would encourage people who think that um, that's something that they want to do um, to contact the, the tax office and uh, we'll, we'll dust off the statute and uh, see what we need to do to set them up with a, a local nonprofit um, to work it off. Um, I'm glad you asked the question. I hadn't thought about that in years. Great, thank you. Um, aside from protesting taxes, um, this is a more large themed question around what we can do as a city and a county to disrupt um, sort of gentrification, its relationship to tax value. So aside from protesting taxes, how does the tax assessor office capture the lived experiences of gentrification that drive tax value up? I hear all the time from Adler and City Council District 3 rep that other people's houses and development does not affect our property taxes. Anyone who lives in, the East, in East Austin or who has been gentrified out of their East Austin home have experienced I think the contradiction to that to that statement. Um, I mean, we see it every day as we're working with taxpayers um, all over the county, but especially on the east side of, of Travis County, um, who are seeing their their values and their taxes going up faster than other parts of the county. And I, I just disagree with some of that. I think gentrification absolutely um, helps drive um, the values up. Um, the appraisal district has to assess property at what somebody's willing to pay for it. And if somebody next door to you put up something really nice that, that it's either commercial and it's generating a bunch of revenue, 
or it's uh, it's a rental property and it's generating enough a lot of rental um, uh, income, um, your property is potentially worth that same amount because somebody can do that to your property. And um, I, I think gentrification has um, um, impacted um, in East Austin and, and allowed caused the values to go up faster than they would have um, otherwise. Whoops, I can't hear you, Virginia. And you're muted. Thank you. Anyone no, else? Muted. Anyone else want to respond to that? Okay, let me just make sure we don't have any questions in the chat. Um, it doesn't look like it. Um, great. Well, we thank you so much, Bruce and Baxter. Again, uh, we will be following up on with information. I know a lot of information and websites were shared. Uh, we'll be sure to capture that from each of our presenters and um, include it in our summary. So please submit your contact information in the contact link that our um, students have shared with you. So we make sure that you get that. Um, we are going to now um, move on to talking about um, the particular options and rights of tenants in this moment, particularly, and preventing evictions. Um, I know there's been a lot of information shared about how to protect yourself from eviction, and we want to make sure we're providing some clarity. So we do have uh, Jonathan Buck, who um, is a staff attorney with Volunteer Legal Services of Central Texas, um, who's going to be um, sharing some overview information. And then we have Shoshana Krager with BOSTA who will be joining him for the Q&A portion. So um, Jonathan, thank you so much. Thanks, Virginia. Uh, this is a tough su uh, subject to cover in 10 minutes. I'm going to do my very best. I apologize if I talk fast. Um, volunteer Legal Services, if you don't know us, uh, we're a great resource in the community. Um, we, we, uh, uh, our mission is to improve access to justice and we do that through volunteer attorneys in the community who volunteer their time. And they give advice and also representation in certain cases. Uh, we can help in eviction cases and also with estate planning and, and foreclosures and things like that. So the very last slide, which I may not get to, is, is important. It's how, we, how to apply for help at Volunteer Legal Services and also information about uh, Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid and how to apply there. Uh, and with Shoshana, who, who's helped with this, and who's participating um, is with BOSTA, a, a Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid program. Uh, and she's going to be dropping into some links of some great resources that will elaborate on this because it's hard to squeeze it into a few slides. So um, first I'm going to present a just a basic strategy for dealing with your landlord and then I'm going to kind of cover the eviction process uh, and, and some changes to it in recent times. Um, and it's not a, a one, you know, one size fits all sort of scenario, but, but this is a pretty good strategy for these times. And I wanted to first address an issue because it's come up, uh, I've seen it on social media and elsewhere, the idea that there is a, a rent freeze right now and that under Texas law, uh, tenants are not required to pay rent. Um, unfortunately, Texas is a state where the law is, is uh, tilted in favor of the landlord. Um, it, it shifted a little now with, with certain protections, but, but still uh, that the absolutely uh, rent, rent does, if you can pay it, definitely do it. And the whole strategy here, because of the way, because the, the law still requires rent to be paid, is, is uh, strategy is around how to catch up. Now you've already heard some great resources uh, to apply for, for emergency funds. 
Uh, one that wasn't mentioned was uh, unemployment compensation through the Texas Workforce Commission. It's much broader right now than it, than it normally is. If you have, uh, if your income has been reduced and you're still working, uh, if you are uh, self-employed, there's just, it's, a, it's just something, a whole other topic to look into, but that's another opportunity. Um, so how do, how do you deal with that? And this is really in, in terms of, of folks who are either behind already in rent or, or thinks that they, that might be, that might happen in the near future. Okay, you're gonna want to come out in front on this and communicate. Let your landlord know about your situation. Basta, uh, Shoshana and Basta have created these, some great forms. There's one to inform your landlord of, of what's happening. And so the, the idea is that you'll, you'll if, if you can pay some now and you're waiting for, and you've, you've applied and you've taken certain steps, let the landlord know. Ideally, you're going to get an agreement in writing, allowing you to catch up over time, maybe over the lease term. And uh, for the next, okay. Um, it's important, and what I'm trying to, to do in this is, is not be a downer, but to look to, to, to know your best and worst case scenarios. Of course, the best case scenario is that, that these funds will be able, that will provide a bridge and, and you'll be, and, and be able to catch up um, while there is a moratorium on um, eviction filings, but um, understanding the timeline and the, the sort of worst case scenario. Well, if I get a letter, does that mean I have to leave, or is it when I is it the day I go to court? We're going to cover that, but it's important to take to keep in mind when you're um, working out a, an arrangement with, with your landlord. Um, importantly, paper trail. Communicate in writing via email um, as best you can, and so as we'll get into. Um, if you can establish that you have offered, you've tried to pay rent and, and the landlord won't work with you or won't accept it, that's going to go a long way. And just generally, um, you uh, creating the, the sort of picture in the paperwork that you're, you're being reasonable and it's the landlord who's not could go a long way if you find yourself at uh, eviction court. Um, finally, just as far as the strategy, if you do get served, absolutely, um, you know, show up. Um, for obviously apply for help with volunteer legal services and Texas Rio Grande Legal Aid and other great resources that uh, Heather shared earlier. Um, but definitely show up and be prepared to challenge this. And, and, and I'll, as I'll get into in a minute, you have appeal rights that can stretch your timeline out as far as when you would ultimately have to leave if, if, there, if it's just not an option to, to catch up. The next slide, please. Okay, so this is tough to squeeze in, but how does the eviction process work? So importantly, a landlord must actually file a suit in the justice of the peace court. If you've been told to leave or you've been locked out or without that process, that's illegal. You, there are, there's a process even during COVID-19 for you to get back in your home if that has happened or if that's threatened to, to, to happen. Um, it has to go through the court process and it's, it's a, there are multiple steps. And if you go to your JP court and you lose, you have an absolute right to an appeal simply by filing a piece of paper. Now there is a, there is a component as well, which we'll talk about in a minute to continue to stay, but you can have two full trials before you would actually have to leave. Um, now the, the landlord in all landlord tenant cases that, um, the pre-suit requirements, which under current law before COVID-19, you're looking at a notice to vacate. It's got to be a proper notice. It's got to have certain requirements and it's got to be served a certain way. And under our law, 
before COVID-19, it was only three days that could be reduced to as few as one. But if you show up in court and your landlord didn't do it or didn't do it right, you can beat the eviction suit. And what we have now, as we see in the next slide, um, through uh, after COVID-19 is a federal law that has been passed, a city law, and new county rules that change the timeline and process. So I'm gonna go ahead and get into that and looking at our next slide. Um, the, the first question to ask is, is very important um, and the question that, that if you can strive to answer now, it would, it would be very helpful. But so the federal component of the new rules, it's, it's under what's called the CARES Act. And it applies to, I think then I heard a number of it, um, as much as 50% of, of properties around Austin. But if, it's, it's, it's not the easiest answer, but if you're in public housing or Section 8 tax credit properties or federally subsidized housing where you've gone through some sort of income verification process, the, the answer is then yes. And it gets a little dicier after that, but there's a link in this, in this uh, presentation um, where you, there's a, a large database, <laughs> fully comprehensive, but you can check there to see. And if you can't get an answer through that process, BASTA has a form which will be dropped into the chat uh, for you to ask your landlord. And finally, the way that under new Travis County procedure, if a landlord brings a suit at any point in the foreseeable future, in the next you know, three plus months, they are going to have to verify upfront that your property is not a CARES Act property in order to proceed and they'll have to swear to that. And if that turns out to be incorrect, um, I, I definitely would win that eviction case, but it's good to know this up front because it definitely impacts your timeline, which, uh, and so now uh, next slide, please. Here we go. So we're, of course we're talking, what I'm, I'm addressing are non-payment evictions. Um, evictions when the landlord is, is um, evicting you for not paying rent. Um, so, okay, let's look, I've tried to, to, to distill these into just a few bullets. It's, it's, it's kind of difficult, but basically there's certain components. One is there's, there's a moratorium or a pause on any eviction hearings right now of, um, for non-payment of rent. So in Travis County, uh, there are no hearings right now at all. Um, and then let's look at when hearings could be scheduled. Um, when you look at the CARES Act, if the CARES Act applies, which is red here, you're really not supposed to have a hearing. That very earliest date you could have a hearing would be August 24th. And I, I arrived at that date by looking at the moratorium period, which goes all the way through July 25th. And then at, in, on, on July 25th, the landlord is required to give a 30-day notice. So that's how you, so you should, there should be no suit filed before that date. And then likely, uh, you know, sometime after. In other cases, we're looking at uh, city and county rules and new, a new city ordinance. And it's a second issue that's been impacted is the, are those pre-suit requirements that the landlord, the, the dot and the I's and crossing the T's that the landlord has to do. Um, the city passed a law that says, if a landlord wants to move forward in, in, in the, during the foreseeable future in an eviction case, they have to send a specific, very specific notice of proposed eviction um, providing specifically 60 days within which the tenant can catch up. And after that point in time, a landlord has to do a proper notice to vacate. So um, depending on, and, and so you, you, know, you kind of get into specifics when you figure out specific dates of when these first things start. But um, 
Th those are the current protections in place now. Uh, there are other aspects. Um, so what, what, what these laws do, and it's not explicit in, in the, it's not, it doesn't say it in the CARES Act, but there's a very good argument that in, at any point along the way, um, during these notice periods, if you can catch up on rent and you can prove that you tendered rent, if you were able to access what funds are available and do that, that you should be able, hopefully, to beat an eviction suit going down the line. Now, you hope that the landlords are gonna, are gonna work with you anyway, because otherwise, you know, they're not, you know, they have a lot of incentive to go ahead and, and accept money and, and be more reasonable these days um, under the current climate. But let's look at late fees, because that's impacted as well, and that's, that's come up, and there's some questions about that. In, if, if, it's, if you live in a CARES Act property and your landlord even sends you um, a ledger, let's say, and in that, just a typical ledger where they say, oh, you're three days late and we're tacking on $20 a day and then, and so forth, they, that, they've already broken the, the rules. They've violated the CARES Act because it says explicitly that no fees, penalties, or other charges uh, can happen. The landlord can't do that between March 25th and July. 26th and July 25th. So, you know, and, and so let's look, okay, importantly though, unfortunately, very unfortunately, uh, that's not the case if the CARES Act doesn't apply. It would, it would, um, it would, the, the way, it, it, the landlord can probably get away with uh, charging late fees. Um, although, uh, certainly if, if you can get the, the rent and, and be able to tender it, not including the late fees, definitely would advise doing that. Um, okay, let's, let's move to the next slide. Okay, this, okay, what happens if the landlord breaks the rules? Um, and most importantly is that you can assert that as a defense in your eviction suit. Um, you know, it doesn't say it in the law that if they do it, that's a defense, but that's, I think, how our local judges are going to interpret this. Certainly, um, it's, it's a landlord's a legal requirement to prove that they've given all the required notices or else they haven't um, pleaded their case, they haven't proven their case. Um, also, in, in the city ordinance that says that there's a specific process with a uh, notice of proposed eviction before a notice to vacate. If the, if the landlord goes about it, doesn't do that, it's a, it's a violation of the city ordinance. It could be reported to, to 311. Um, also, the county has rules that govern notices to vacate, not allowed to send one out before May 8th at all, that if, if the landlord's done that, that violates uh, county law and that can be reported. And also BOSTA is keeping a list and assisting with people who have instances where your landlords have violated any of these rules. So, uh, and that's gonna be dropped into the chat as well. Also, of course, seek legal counsel if you can. Okay, um, I'm going to kind of quickly go through this slide to get to the next, but my, the, the point of this is that um, I just wanted to give you an idea of a typical timeline in an eviction suit. This is assuming the worst. This is assuming that uh, you're not able to access those rent funds and, the, and, and, and get the employment and be able to, to, to tender rent and your landlord sort of follows the rules the way that they're supposed to. I just, it's important to know these dates. So let's go to the next slide just to look at it sort of in a typical timeline. And to step back, the, it, the, the, the courts have sort of been on freeze, on pause now for months um, and are going to be starting up. And it is almost definite that there is going to be a significant backlog. I mean, you can't count on it, 
But my guess is that if, as you go through these, these steps, so in, when you're served with an eviction suit, you have a hearing date. That hearing date usually is within uh, two weeks or so, but that date, that may not be feasible currently. But when you, after you have your current, your hearing date, you have, you can file a statement of inability to pay or postpone five days later. That appeal, that, that's what effectuates the appeal in these cases. Then five days after that is when you have to come up with one month's rent. And if you do, then the case kind of pauses, everything is transferred to the county court at law, there's a pause, and then it's, it's, it's up to the landlord then to schedule a hearing, to know that they need to do that and then do it, and then be able to get on the docket. And then after that hearing, there's, there's an additional lag. It's just to say that, you know, it's not like you get a notice and, you, and, and oh, I, I'm gonna, I, it's possible that I could be, have to leave right away. It would at least at the very worst case scenario, you're gonna have a little bit of time. Now, if, you do, if you're not able to pay that one month's rent in, in the middle and the bottom there, of course, that's gonna shorten that timeline. The appeal would still happen. And there are downsides to appealing, which is our, for another presentation, theoretically, you could be on the hook if you lose in county court and the landlord hires an attorney, a judgment could be entered uh, in favor of the attorney. But um, uh, to, to conclude, um, definitely take advantage of the resources that are there and apply for help with DLS and uh, also with uh, Trala, which is on the next page. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Again, we know this is a lot of information and we um, you can't absorb it all at this time, but um, thank you to Shoshana for sharing some of the resources in the chat. And we will definitely be sharing not only this presentation, but also all the uh, resources that have been shared throughout the presentation. Um, with folks who submit their contact information um, in the link we provided. And then obviously we'll be sharing it through the Austin Justice Coalition listserv um, and newsletter and the Community Housing Hub listserv and um, newsletter. Um, we know we write at 7.30, but we wanna make sure people are able to ask questions um, of both Jonathan um, with uh, Volunteer Legal Services as well as Shoshana with BASTA. Um, so please feel free to submit a question through the Q&A portal or put it in the chat. Um, so I'm going to open the floor to both Jonathan and Shoshana. We already have one question, um, and it is, what if you don't have a lease? Um, there might be a little, do you have a response to that? And um, I think this was submitted by Sarah Rodriguez. If you have any additional context, please feel free to put that in the chat. Definitely. If you if if you're paying the landlord and the landlord's accepting the money and it's, it's sort of a month to month situation, whether there's a written lease or not, you have a lease under the law. Yeah, and these protections would apply to you. And it's also it doesn't matter your documentation status doesn't matter. Um, the these uh, these laws and the CARES Act protections, the federal CARES Act protections apply regardless of immigration status. I think one thing I would just uh, add or piggyback on uh, what Jonathan said um, is th this area right now is very confusing. There's a lot going on. Uh, what Jonathan said tonight could be different and modified tomorrow. Just uh, a couple days ago, we found out Travis County Courts extended their moratorium. And then uh, the week before that, it was Texas Supreme Court. And there was like all of these different things. But if there's one thing to take away is that in this moment, if you get a notice to vacate, don't panic. 
there's time. There are rules and there are laws and there are protections. And just because you have a, there's a law in the book, obviously any tenant knows that doesn't really mean anything in terms of you being protected because landlords violate laws every single day. Um, and that has to do with power. And we need to take out of this moment um, a lesson of like, how are we shifting that power? How are we getting better laws on the book for tenants, which we can use and fight for? Um, but for this time, there is a pause. So that means we can scramble. We can try to, we, we can try to figure out what's going on. And there's a support network in place to try to make this uh, less confusing and to help you navigate the confusion. Um, but that also means we're going to have to step up as a community together and make sure that the laws on the books are actually being enforced. So one of the things that BASTA is doing is we're partnering with Austin Tenants Council and Democratic Socialists of America in doing an eviction solidarity network um, where we are committing to show up when courts reopen, whether that's virtually or in person, and show solidarity with folks and say, that no one should be evicted in this moment, in this climate. Um, and so engaging in activities like that in many different, there's a lot of different movement work happening right now is so important to moving housing justice forward. Thank you, Shoshana. I don't see any other questions that have been submitted, uh, but there was some information just shared in the chat um, about some of the resources available through um, through the city of Austin. So please feel free to look at the chat. Um, please feel free to submit some questions as um, we kind of come to a close. Um, like I said, we are going to be offering all the information shared throughout tonight's clinic uh, virtually. Um, feel free to follow up if you haven't or weren't able to submit your contact information in the link that we shared please um, take a look at our website. We'll be posting that information. Give us um, till the end of the week, and then we'll also be sharing it through our newsletter. Um, contact information for the Center for Community Engagement at UT is there, and then my um, direct email address I've listed as well, Virginia um, Cumberbatch. You can find me at vacumberbatch at austin.utexas.edu. Um, and I can also be a link to any of the people you heard speak tonight. So, if all the information we've shared was just too much and you can't keep track of who said what, feel free to just shoot me an email and I'd be happy to connect you with anyone. Um, you should be seeing um, a link to our survey um, that was just posted. That's really just a way for us to um, make sure that if we were to do an additional clinic, maybe later in the summer or in the fall, um, that we are responding to the immediate needs um, of the community. And so we would love your feedback on how to adjust. Um, this is our first time doing a virtual uh, Zoom broadcast, particularly with all this information. We typically obviously do this in person with breakout sessions so that people can actually walk away with tangible materials and fill out forms. Uh, we obviously weren't able to do that this evening, but we hope the information we shared was a good starting point. Um, we also just want to really thank our um, our partners with the Austin Justice Coalition, thank you for the work you all are doing um, to just show up and respond in this moment uh, for our community as we face such an unprecedented time. I wanna thank everyone um, who 
gave us their time and their expertise and their passion and their heart tonight. Um, so thank you to Kendra, thank you to Heather, thank you to Bruce and Baxter and Greg, thank you to Jonathan and thank you to Shoshana. Um, also a big shout out, y'all can't see them, but behind the scenes we have a wonderful team of uh, UT students who've been answering your questions and posting information in the chat. Um, we will stay on for a couple more minutes just in case there are more questions or more discussion that needs to happen in the chat. Um, but we just want to thank you guys for um, taking the time out this evening. Um, we hope this was helpful. Um, again, please feel free to reach out to let us know how we can um, show up in this moment and work alongside you um, for a more equitable Austin. So thank you guys so much. Have a lovely evening. I would say safe travels, but that's not the case. So have a wonderful evening wherever you are. Thank you so much.